Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. A couple of weeks ago, um, I had jury duty. And uh, yeah, it was actually my first time. I'd gotten a couple of summons over the years, um, but for whatever reason, it hadn't worked out. Uh, this time, it worked out. And so I went. And have, how many of you have done jury duty or at least gone to the thing? Yeah, it was really interesting um, for a number of reasons. Uh, the biggest one was that they gave us 45 minutes for lunch, and um, all they had was a snack machine. That was very difficult, honestly, very difficult. Um, but no, I'm actually not going to get into the, the case thing for a number of reasons. I think it's actually ongoing. Um, I was not selected for the jury, um, but it was, it was a really like hard, horrible um, accusation that was happening. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been this, but you know, there's 80 of you in this room. You're all being asked questions. Um, the uh, accused is actually in the room with you um, and they're facing you. So you're facing them, they're facing you. And it was an all day thing. I, I was there from like eight to two or three, um, going through a number of questions, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, they asked a bunch of questions that were kind of like voluntary. That was like 95% of the questions. So you could just raise your hand and be like, oh yeah, I have experience with this, or yeah, I have experience with that. And, and they would ask, right, do you think this would prevent you from being able to be impartial in this case? And some people would say yes, some people would say no. Um, but again, because of the subject matter, it was really a difficult series of questions. People like broke down crying a couple of times. One guy got physically ill, had to get up and go out of the room. Um, it, it, was, it was really, really awful. Um, but there was one question that they asked every single person to answer, and that is, what is the purpose of our justice system? Punishment or rehabilitation? What is the purpose of our justice system? Punishment or rehabilitation? So there's 80 of us, so they literally just go one, two, and the person goes punishment or rehabilitation. I mean, all the way through. Um, 80 people, one by one. And now I'm like not judging anyone. Um, and I think probably the heinous nature of the charges affected people's answers in this case, but it was at least 75% of people said that punishment was the purpose of our justice system. Um, now, if you know anything about our justice system in America or the way we kind of practice incarceration, that number probably isn't surprising to you. But for those of us without that knowledge, here are a few statistics. So the United States has 5% of the world's human population, but 25% of the world's prison population. 5% of the world's population, 25% of the prison population. One out of every four prisoners in the world is in America. Since 1980, the incarcerated population has increased from half a million to 2.3 million. That's a 500% increase in the last 40 plus years. 2.3 million prisoners. That works out to about 700 out of every 100,000 residents being in prison. Because I know you're probably thinking, well, America's big. It's got a lot of people in it. That's probably why we're near the top. But that's about 700 out of every 100,000 residents in prison. That's the highest percentage in the world by a significant margin. Number two is El Salvador with about 600 out of every 100,000. Rwanda is third with 465. And Russia is fourth with 383, about half of the prison population per capita that we have. 
But we aren't just locking up more people, we're locking up people for longer times. The average length of time served by an individual sentenced to federal prison increased from 17.9 to 37.5 months between 1988 and 2012, even in the face of a bunch of research that was happening at that same time that longer sentences don't actually reduce recidivism or reincarceration. During this same period, average sentence lengths increased by almost 170% across the board. Now, it's also important to point out that mass incarceration in America doesn't affect everyone equally. Poor people and people of color are locked up at incredibly disproportionate rates. So though black and brown folks only make up about 32% of the U.S. population, they make up about 56% of the prison population. In fact, black Americans are locked up more than five times the rate of white Americans. And if you want to really personalize it, a white baby boy born in the United States has a one in 23 chance of going to prison in their lifetime. For a black boy, it's one in four. One in four. Sorry, we were, um, you remember our, some of our story, we were foster parents for a long time, and um, our first little kid, Trey, um, it was his birthday yesterday, and uh, Every single one of our foster kids' dads were incarcerated. Every single one. Additionally, more than 75% of the folks currently held in jails across the country have not been convicted of a crime. These are jails, right? Not prisons. 75% of the folks in jail have not been convicted of a crime. They sit there because they don't have enough money to pay bail fees or fines. There are first and second order effects to all of this, right? It's not just harmful for the person who's locked up, it's actually harmful for the families and communities that they are connected to as well. These problems in our justice system, I wanna make this really clear because I think it's important, they actually span partisan and ideological divides. Both conservative and progressives connected to the justice system agree on the severity of these issues and the need for reform. A couple of years ago, a Christian prison ministry called the Colson Center released a statement entitled Responding to Crime and Incarceration, A Call to the Church. Now, this statement was signed. If you know Chuck Colson uh, worked for the Nixon administration, he did some time in federal prison for the Watergate scandal, um, very conservative Christian guy. Um, it was signed by many of the most prominent evangelicals in the world, including the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the president of the Anglican Church, and the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And in this statement, the Colson Center puts it very directly. Our over-reliance on incarceration fails to make us safer or restore the people and communities who have been harmed. The Jesuit priest, Father Greg Boyle, says it like this, society punishes people for bad behavior and we call it justice, but real justice restores. Real justice restores. Now, for the most part, our justice system is not designed to restore people or communities. It's really just not designed that way. Good, bad, ugly, it's a system that was designed first and foremost to punish people. Now, you may be wondering, what does all this have to do with the church and faith and God? Well, I think it has a lot to do with those things. And here's why. Our God is a God of justice. The prophet Isaiah said exactly that in the 30th chapter of his Old Testament book. The Lord is a God of justice. 
You see, justice is not something that God does on occasion. It's not kind of a a peripheral part of his mission. Justice is actually a core characteristic of God. And we know that because we've been in this series for the last five weeks called The Nature of God, in which we've been examining these core characteristics based on God's own self-description of what he is like from the book of Exodus. Here's the passage. The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and grace, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. It's justice. Now, it sometimes feels like that last sentence of God's self-description is in conflict with the rest of it, right? Does it kind of feel like that? Like the first five go together really well. God is compassionate and gracious and loving and faithful and forgiving. But the final one kind of feels like the odd man out, especially since the last sentence starts with but. It kind of feels like God is saying, I'm all of these beautiful things, but I'm also this kind of brutal thing too. I'm compassionate and loving, but not always. I'm gracious and forgiving, but not every time. But I think the final characteristic feels out of place because most of us have an understanding of justice that is radically different than God's understanding of justice. And our beliefs about what justice is and how it should be carried out are often more informed by our culture than the way of Jesus. Back at the beginning of this year, we actually did an entire series tracing the theme of justice throughout Scripture. You can go back and check it out. Um, But today we're going to focus on better understanding what God's justice actually is and why that matters so much. Because as we've said throughout this whole series, it's so important for us to understand who God is and what God is like because that greatly influences who we believe ourselves to be and what we believe we should be like. So this morning, I'm going to start with the main point, and then I'm going to use the rest of the sermon to show you why it's true and why it matters so much. So here's my main point. In a world where justice is almost always retributive and punishing, God's justice is restorative and liberating. In a world where justice is almost always retributive and punishing, God's justice is actually restorative and liberating. In fact, I don't think God's justice is ever retributive. I think it is always restorative. And that means that if something is vindictive or vengeful or punishing, it is not from God. God's explicitly and consistently stated desire throughout all of Scripture is that all people would experience the fullness of life that he desires for them. When Jesus, God in the flesh, gave a one-sentence mission statement for why he came to earth, he said exactly that. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's why we're spending this entire fall and spring doing our year of healing and wholeness because healing and wholeness and fullness of life is God's desire for each of us and for all of humanity. This is how I know that God's justice is always restorative and never retributive. This is how I know that God's justice is always about redemption and not about punishment. Because if God wants all of humanity to have life to the full, punishment and retribution actually do much more harm to that mission than good. Because you see, punishment is powerless. In and of itself, punishment is powerless. One time when I was like seven or eight years old, I was throwing a football around my house and I broke a lamp. Naturally, I was punished. Yes, of course, that's very on brand for me. 
Naturally, I was punished, right? Nothing too severe. My parents were, were really pretty gracious with me, but I had to go spend an hour in my room. And after my hour was up, I came out of my room and guess what? The lamp was magically fixed. Just by virtue of me fulfilling my punishment, the lamp was made as good as new. No, that did not happen. Punishment can't fix a broken lamp, right? Punishment is powerless by itself. It can't fix anything. And retribution, retribution is even worse because retribution isn't just powerless. Retribution is a multiplier of pain. You see, when we seek revenge after being hurt, more people end up hurt. When we fight fire with fire, everybody just ends up on fire. Pastor and author Jamie Arpenrici once wrote, if our justice is guided by retribution, we will simply perpetuate the use and abuse of power to inflict violence. Now, there are many times in Scripture where God allows humans to be handed over to the consequences of their own decisions. We see this all the time. But that's not his justice. That's simply the reality of broken people living in a broken world and dealing with those consequences. Because as I said a moment ago, in a world where justice is almost always retributive and punishing, God's justice is restorative. N.T. Wright says it like this, God's justice is a saving, healing, restorative justice. Because the God to whom justice belongs is the creator God who has yet to complete his original plan for creation and whose justice is designed not simply to restore balance to a world out of kilter, but to bring glorious completion and fruition the creation, teeming with life and possibility the way he made it in the first place. Remember Eden, the garden? That's God's desire. God's justice is taking what was broken, the effects of sin and evil in the world that they have perpetrated and, and moved through the human race for thousands and thousands of years. God's justice is designed to right those wrongs, to return us to the state of shalom, of peace, of abundant goodness in all things and between all things. That's God's plan. And we see God's restorative justice in action all throughout the Old Testament as he does things like free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and, and worked in the practice of child sacrifice that was rampant during that time. We also see many Old Testament authors declare God's heart for justice, like Amos when he said, let justice roll on like a river, Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or Isaiah, when he said, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Or Micah, when he said, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? But if the Old Testament reveals pieces of God's restorative justice, the New Testament gives us the full picture. Because you see, Jesus, God in the flesh, was justice incarnate. Jesus was God's justice with skin on, and he went around doing restorative work wherever he went. Temporal restorative work, right? Like healing the sick and, and, and fixing the blind and all of these incredible things, but also ultimate restorative work like forgiving sins and giving eternal life to anyone and everyone who wanted it. He spent his entire life bringing restoration to individuals and communities, and then through his death and resurrection, brought restoration and salvation as possibility for everyone. This is how Paul described Jesus to the early church. He calls him the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, the grace of God in the flesh, bringing salvation to all 
people. So with all that as our foundation, I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning walking through my favorite restorative justice story in Scripture and talking about what it means for both how we accept and then extend justice in the world today. Does that sound good? Give me a nod if that sounds good. All right. This is the story of a guy named Zacchaeus. Raise your hand if you've heard of Zacchaeus. What do we know about Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. Yep. Yep. Not sure how PC that song is anymore. But yeah. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. I shouldn't ask that question. That was dumb. Luke's account of Jesus' life, chapter 19. We'll be there. Uh, if you've got a Bible, phone, anything like that, you can follow along. The verses will also be on the screen behind me. Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Okay, I'm going to stop here and I'm going to spend a few minutes setting the entire scene of the context and culture, what's happening here. So at this point in Jesus' life, he's coming toward the end of his time on earth. He's traveling south from Galilee, where he spent most of his life, kind of the region in which he was born, to Jerusalem, where he will spend his final few days on earth, and then his death and resurrection will happen. So at this time in the story, Jesus is nearing the end of his journey from Galilee. He's getting really close to Jerusalem. We know that because Jericho is only about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. But this part of the excursion, this part of the trip was treacherous. It was straight uphill with an elevation increasing by about 3,300 feet during just those 15 miles. So I brought a picture. This is the tallest building in Austin skyline. You know that one? It's called the Independent, but I call it the Jenga building. I don't know what other people call it. No, y'all call it? All right, great. That one in the middle there, that's the tallest building in Austin. It's about 690 feet tall. So picture this. The elevation on that 15-mile trip from Jericho to Jerusalem is the same as almost five of those buildings stacked on top of each other. That's how far up you were going as you elevated just during those 15 miles of hiking. It was intense. Now, in addition to being physically demanding, this road was also riddled with thieves waiting to ambush unsuspecting travelers. Okay, I have a quick piece of Bible trivia here. Does anyone know a story about someone who got beaten up and left for dead on the Jericho Road? Well, you can say it out, or you just hand up. Okay, you know. Jesus, no, that's incorrect. Um, good question. That's the Sunday school answer, for sure. Jesus. No, does anybody remember the story? What's the story called? Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan, another great story of restorative justice that we could talk about later on. But if you remember, this is exactly what happens to the man in that story. Luke 10, 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So he was going down, right? He was in Jerusalem going to Jericho. Jesus is in Jericho going up to Jerusalem. Now, because the difficulty of the journey and the desire to be only on that dangerous road in the daytime, most travelers on their way to Jerusalem stopped in Jericho. This was a very common practice. They stopped for the night, they spent the night, and then they tackled those last 15 miles in the morning. And Jericho actually made for a really great stopover because as best we can tell from ancient descriptions and excavations, it was this beautiful and pretty affluent city. Its location made it a perfect center for trade routes and its industry brought enough money for the city to be filled with amenities, like things that weren't very common during this time, things like bathhouses and banquet halls and beautiful gardens. It was really this kind of exquisite city. 
Now, I want to pause and say something really quick. You may be wondering why I just spent like five minutes talking about the background of verse one. I'm not going to do that for every verse. Just mentally prepare yourself. And I get it, right? It's like a lot of information. But here's the thing. Every single person in the original audience would have intuitively known all of that stuff I just told you. Right? When they heard about Jesus going to Jericho and getting ready to go to Jerusalem, Luke wouldn't have had to spell all that stuff out. He wouldn't have had to show pictures of buildings and being like, it's really high. These people would have made the journey. They knew what it was like. They knew how treacherous it was. This is the kind of importance of having the understanding of context and culture and what's happening in the scriptures as we try to interpret them and apply them to our lives. As someone who diligently teaches through scriptures each week, I think it's my job to try to do that, to try to bridge the gap for us between the world of scripture and ours. Because I, I really do think it's hard to truly understand the truth of scripture without understanding the context and culture in which it was written. So that's why I took time to explain all of the first century stuff that the audience would have known intuitively. Okay, back to the story. So Jesus has decided to stop and spend the night in Jericho before his final leg of his journey to Jerusalem. Now we're going to meet the other main character in the story, verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. So Luke tells us three things about Zacchaeus in this sentence. Number one, he's Jewish. We know that because Zacchaeus is a Hebrew name. Number two, he's the chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, the chief. We'll come back to that in a second. Number three, he is wealthy. Now, because of these three characteristics, Zacchaeus is kind of a walking juxtaposition because being Jewish and wealthy would have meant prominence in this culture, but being a tax collector would mean he would have been universally despised by his people. Tax collecting was very looked down upon. You see, Jewish tax collectors, like Zacchaeus, they worked for the occupying Roman government at the time. And the Jewish people viewed tax collecting as stealing money from their own people and giving it to the occupying enemy. And so they were essentially, a lot of times, tax collectors excommunicated from the community, from the community of faith and from the regular part of the community. They were kind of pushed out of that, right? And Zacchaeus, he wasn't just an ordinary tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. That means he oversaw and employed all the tax collectors in Jericho, which was actually a regional tax center for the Romans. And basically, Rome would sell the tax collecting rights in any given area to the highest bidder. And the contract, it would stipulate that a certain amount of money had to go back to Rome, right? They had to have taxes to build their roads, to do the thing, to go occupy more countries. So a certain amount had to come back to Rome. But the contract holder, the chief tax collector, could keep anything else for himself. This made it easy for people like Zacchaeus to get very rich, very quickly, in very nefarious ways, right? Because if he had to give, like, say, in our world, you know, a couple of thousand dollars a month back to Rome for each person, he could tax everybody at like $5,000 a month, and then he got to keep whatever else was on top. So simply put, Zacchaeus ran a highly profitable organization inside of a ruthless and unregulated industry, because under the Romans, first century taxation is basically this pyramid scheme, and Zacchaeus is right near the top. But there's also more to Zacchaeus than meets the eye here. He hears there's this famous teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, going to visit his town, and he wants to see him. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and he could not see over the crowd, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. 
since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter. This word mutter is like talk under their breath. Like they were frustrated. They said things like he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, even though Zacchaeus was this rich, powerful man, it's obvious he's like searching for something more. He hears that this great teacher, this great person, Jesus of Nazareth, is coming, and he works so hard to be able to see him. And that's why Jesus sees him and says, hey, come down. And when he did, at a strange request from a, a stranger, Zacchaeus just comes down immediately. He just responds. But not everyone is happy that Jesus is spending the night in Zacchaeus's house. Because in addition to being all those things I talked about earlier, Jericho was also the home to some of the most powerful priests in the region. So for Jesus's layover in town, we would expect him to stay at the home of a priest or even just a religiously devout person, but that's not what happens. Zacchaeus just wanted to catch a glimpse of the famous teacher, Jesus, but he ends up getting a little bit more than he bargained for here. Jesus is coming to stay at his house. Now, the word here for stay, it's more literally translated to unpack your bags. This was going to be a significant time. He was going to stay. It was going to include at least a night's sleep and at least two meals, dinner the night before, breakfast the next morning. Now, this is important, very important, because in this culture, you see, eating and spending the night in someone's home was placing yourself in covenant solidarity with that person. So Jesus is announcing here in no uncertain terms that he is friends with Zacchaeus. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach says it like this, in this culture, eating with a person who had ill-gotten gain, like Zacchaeus, made one a partner in crime. Jesus is freely and publicly associating with Zacchaeus, standing in covenant solidarity with him. Now, we see that people watching and grumbling as Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, they're not just being petty. Jesus is entering into covenant relationship with a high-level criminal who has been oppressing and extorting them for years. Now, candidly, this seems like the opposite of justice, right? This seems like a really not cool thing for Jesus to do. If the people had been in the large crowd following Jesus just before, they would have witnessed an interaction with a kid named the rich young ruler. And if you don't remember this story, a rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks what he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when he heard this, the rich young ruler became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? So Jesus has just had this teaching that it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Y'all, how much more so for a rich man who had accumulated his wealth in such a sinful and oppressive way like Zacchaeus? It seems like Jesus is kind of contradicting himself here by entering into this covenant relationship with Zacchaeus. At the very least, he's setting himself up to be embarrassed by staying at, one of the, at the home of one of the most famous criminals in Jericho. But then something truly incredible happens. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. In front of everyone, 
as the people are grumbling that Jesus has chosen Zacchaeus' house to stay, Zacchaeus has a radical change of heart that results in restitution and redemption. What a beautiful picture of the power of restorative justice. Because what Zacchaeus commits to do here, giving away half his possessions to the poor and paying back anyone he has stolen from four times, it's greater than anything the Roman or Jewish law suggests. He is going above and beyond in his commitment to restoration. And listen to how Jesus responds, verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus seeks to make amends with everyone he has wronged, but the beautiful thing is it doesn't even just stop there. He doesn't just commit to bring restitution to those he has personally extorted. He has been so radically changed by the love and power of Jesus that he decides to help bring restoration to everyone he can. So he gives away half of his possessions to poor people in Jericho. Jesus' justice doesn't just restore Zacchaeus. It brings restoration to an entire community. As Lisa Sharon Harper says, by ministering to Zacchaeus, Jesus lifted economic oppression off the shoulders of an entire town. Y'all, this is the power of God's restorative justice. It transforms felons into philanthropists and oppression into prosperity. It would have been easy for Jesus to ignore Zacchaeus, right? To see him up in the tree and just walk on by. It would have been easy for him to even treat him the way that Zacchaeus had treated all those people he had extorted and stolen from. But Jesus doesn't. Let me point out something. That would have been the popular thing to do. That would have been the thing that everybody in town applauded, right? Hey, this guy up in the tree, Jesus, he's the worst, right? treat him that way. Everybody would have been on Jesus' side. No muttering, no grumbling, no frustration, no questioning of Jesus. But that's not what he chooses to do. Because God's justice is meant to bring restoration to all people, to the oppressed and to the oppressor, both the victim and the villain. And it's also meant to remind us that we are almost always a little bit of both in our lives. Earlier, I quoted Father Greg Boyle, and if you've been around Restore for a while, you've probably heard me quote him quite a lot. That's because he continues to be this very profound influence on me. If you don't know his story, in addition to being a Jesuit priest, Greg Boyle is the founder and director of something called Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. It is the world's largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program. So for the last 30 years, Homeboy Industry has helped gang members, at-risk youth, and incarcerated folks through a variety of free programs like mental health counseling, legal services, tattoo removal, curriculum and education classes, work readiness training, and employment services. And in fact, they actually have a number of businesses that they themselves own, where they employ only former gang members and inmates. It's really incredible. If you want to learn more about Father Boyle and Homeboy, he's written a trio of wonderful books. There's also information online and stuff. I'd highly recommend looking more into him. But here's one of the reasons I admire Greg Boyle so much is because he lives and breathes restorative justice in ways that are absolutely changing the world. In his latest book, he tells about helping bring restoration to gang members. And he says it like this, the people locked up are as much the victims as the perpetrators. 
We want to hold the wounded and the person who did the wounding because we are always both. We are all always both. And he goes on to give some examples of what this can look like. Here's what he says. This isn't going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read a little bit. Anthropologist Margaret Mead observed throughout her travels in Africa how tribes perceived a crime to be a sign of distress from the criminal. Sometimes they'd spend two days encircling the perpetrator and only speak of his or her goodness. Consequently, the community around the person sought to direct healing and to alleviate this pain. Similarly, the Navajo thought that the criminal was one who acted as if he had no family a severed belonging. These tribes were able to see pain and wound and knew that punishment didn't make any sense. Restorative justice is not vindication. It's about healing and alleviating pain. It's not about vengeance. This is the same kind of restorative justice practiced by the early church all throughout the book of Acts. And Paul actually prescribed it to first century Christians. Here's Galatians. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We have, a lot of us, if you grew up in church, you've heard bear one another's burdens, right? That's like a super famous passage. That's Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.1, this verse is about restoring people who have stepped into sin and pain. That's what he means when he says bear one another's burdens. See, restorative justice is part of what it means to be a Christian in the first century, and it's still part of what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century. If we claim to follow a God of restorative justice, then we must be people of restorative justice. Christian writer Sophia Lee Hewn says it like this, the entire narrative of the Bible points to God's restorative justice at work in the world, restoring our relationship with him and with one another, directing us to see each other as image bearers of God and treat everyone with equality, fairness, and justice. We are tasked to create, restore, and sustain dignity in relationships with the same grace and love that God gave us. So what would this look like What would it look like if the 200 million self-identified Christians in America took this seriously? What would happen if we traded in the powerlessness of punishment for the boundless redemption accomplished through restorative justice? I submit to you that everything would change, that our country and the world would change. What if people who claim to follow Jesus this God who restores, would stand up and declare in no uncertain terms that we will no longer tolerate a justice system built on retribution? What if we would just no longer stand by and tacitly approve the fact that as a country, we lead the world in incarceration by a wide margin? If we took this seriously, we would model God's justice in our churches by making sure that they are places where we don't shrug off injustice or or sweep it under a rug, but also we don't practice vengeance and retribution, right? If we took this seriously, I think we would stand up and boldly remind people of the truth that punishment is powerless by itself and that true justice, God's justice, always restores.
I think the real world application and impact of this truth is truly limitless. If we would just take it seriously and we would step into it. Our God is a God of restorative justice and we must be people of restorative justice too. Amen? Amen. Okay, let me pray. Lord God, I'm always blown away I trace the the work, the themes, these self-descriptions you've given us about you throughout Scripture, and I see the beautiful consistency with which you practice these things. You are a God who is loving and compassionate, faithful, forgiving, and just. God, and I pray that we would have this deep understanding that those characteristics are not in conflict with one another, that your love is faithful, that your justice is compassionate, God, that your forgiveness is always available, that you are beautifully and truly consistent. May we be consistently people of love and compassion and faith and forgiveness and restorative justice too. Make that true of us as individuals. Make that true of us as a church family. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.